0: So this message is called Loving the Inconvenience, and uh, I, I love the, uh, the graphic that Annie created for this one. Uh, she, was, she was sort of disturbed by, it. she's like, I'm so sorry, I don't have much more time, but I just wanted to throw an idea your way, and I was like, oh, that fits really well. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different ways that we can interpret the word inconvenience, but long and short, it's a negative concept. And one of the fun things about the kingdom of heaven is you can take all the negative concepts, most of them, and actually see that there's a conversion point of them where you actually you could have a totally different attitude towards that very thing in your life. And inconvenience is one of those things that it's really hard uh, to come up with a good way of looking at it, right? Inconvenience. I mean, everything about the word uh, is a challenge but let's walk through that. My message isn't just on inconvenience. It's more on the loving the side of it, because you could actually swap out inconvenience with a lot of different synonyms or a lot of different concepts, and we have the wrong approach to them. It's like we're wearing the wrong glasses. In the book of Philippians, Paul is going to use this word "phroneo" in the Greek. And it's sort of, sometimes it's translated as attitude, the attitude of Christ. Sometimes it's translated as mind, the mind of Christ. Basically, it's like the glasses of Christ. It's the way in which you look at something. And Paul is going to say, look, I'm in a prison cell, but I rejoice. And I'm going to tell you, rejoice. The whole book, he has this attitude of triumph, even though everything in the natural realm sort of is rather stinky. And whatever he has there that we are supposed to have, we are supposed to have that same set of glasses that we are wearing. And when we do, it doesn't matter what prison cell, or you swap out what prison cell could be in your situation, whatever grumble point in our life we could have, whatever strain point we could have, and you can put a lot in that. There's a lot of possibilities that could go in that. Whatever it is, there is a way of looking at it. There is a way of appropriating it. That is actually triumphant. I use the illustration a lot of the eagle, and that the eagle uh, has a strength in its wings to actually rise above storms. So, as a result, if we ever get likened to an eagle, like in Deuteronomy, we're likened to eagles, or the, the, uh, the kingdom of heaven, or the, the saints of God, or the Israelites are likened, well, you want to sort of claim that one if, you, if, you're, if it's nearby. Just grab it real quick, because an eagle has the luxury of being in a storm, but not really in it. They could be above it. So storm happening, just like in your life, you could have that circumstance, whatever that inconvenience, whatever that pressure chamber is, whatever that difficulty is, whatever that challenge is, it could be there, but you don't need to be beneath it. You can be above it. And if you had that luxury, if you had that avenue, if you had that ticket, it's like, well, do you have the ticket? Because you could be above this. As a believer, your ticket is the shed blood of Jesus. Yes, I have Jesus. Boom! There is an elevation to your game instantaneously, an elevation to your perspective. Could you imagine if you could right now sit at the right hand of the Most High God and look down at life, what is happening in this earth from that vantage point? How would it change your perspective? And of course, those of you that know how it all works would say, well, that's technically where we're at. You'd be right. You see, we are seated in heavenly places in Christ, which means where he is seated, we are seated. He is at the right hand of the Father. It's the place of all authority. All things are underneath his feet, and we are seated with him. And the New Testament is bringing us into this understanding to say, all right, now live from that perspective. That attitude, that freneo, you put on those glasses, it changes everything. Suddenly, all of the concerns, the financial concerns of the world, the wars and the rumors of wars, the health pandemics, all the different things that the world is under, you actually have the privilege of looking at them from a different perspective. So the attitude, the freneo in the Greek, Which glasses are you wearing? So I'm going to give you a definition of inconvenience. Now, this is a made-up definition. This is an Eric Ludi definition. I'm famous for giving those, right? And I, I call this the Earth Dictionary. It's just like everyone on Earth is in agreement. This is the definition of inconvenience. It's a very, very bad thing. Hopefully, it never happens to you, right? I mean, who would ever want an inconvenience? That's just terrible. So I'm going to give you a different dictionary. Now, again, this is Eric Ludy's made-up dictionary, but I'm going to call this the heaven dictionary, right? If heaven had a dictionary, which I'm, I know it does, I mean, but uh, this is what it might say. It's a very, very good thing. When you embrace it, you discover the amazing grace of God. You see, if you knew that by embracing your inconvenience, you actually unlock something known as grace in your life, well, then you would really want to embrace it. Now, some of you are like, well, tell me more about grace then, because I'm not exactly sure if I really want this thing called amazing grace. You do, believe me. Uh, Jackie Pullinger, when she came back from the walled city of Hong Kong, and I've given this quote many times, so if you've heard it, there's a reason, because it's one of the quotes that most impacted my life when it comes to the idea of grace. She was in the walled city of Hong Kong. Even the police wouldn't go in there. It was so destitute and depraved. And she had this little, uh, I don't know, I want to say apartment, because I've never really been able to wrap my mind around where she was living. But it's this little small room, and she had a bed in it. And every night she had all these heroin addicts that were coming in. They were coming off of heroin. And it sounds like a miserable life, right? Ever talk about inconvenience. Boy, I don't want to live there. She comes back, and she goes, you may have your own bed but I know God's grace. And I remember thinking, why in the world? She almost seems like she has something that she's bragging about. Hey, do I really? I mean, I like having my own bed, but she has something I'm interested in knowing more about. You see, what Jackie had in that situation was better than what I have without inconvenience. When you allow, when you embrace an inconvenience in your life, it opens up a channel into your soul that is actually of greater measurement, greater blessing, greater consolation than if you didn't have that inconvenience at all. Now, some of you are a little dubious, as I'm saying, as like, oh, I don't know about that. You know, give me a life of peace and calm without any challenge, and I would be much happier than a, a, someone with challenge. With difficulty. Well, I think there is great argument, not just in Scripture, but throughout all Christian history, that those with the most robust souls, with the most robust perspectives, with the most joy, are those oftentimes with the most difficulty. Isn't that an interesting statement? I've often said, and I I wrote a a book uh, to Leslie on our 20th anniversary. Now we've been married almost 27 and This was a bit ago, and it was called Barracks 28. We named our marriage uh, Barracks 28, sort of a negative sounding title. Uh, and yet it depicts that was from Ravensbrook concentration camp during World War II, where hundreds of thousands of women were killed. And, but Corey Tenboom's story so impacted us because it talked about Corey and Betsy sharing a bunk, sharing a pillow, and sharing each other's breath. And they were going through extreme trauma, but they had each other in the midst of it. It's like, that's it. And there was also a statement about uh, Barracks 28, which was something like this. It was the crazy barracks where they still had hope. And I remember thinking, that's what I want to have in our marriage. I don't care what's going on around us. Even though there's bomb blasts, even though there's uh, you know, extermination uh, taking place, we want to be the marriage that still has hope, the crazy marriage that still has hope. I want to be the crazy church that still has hope. You see, there is something that we possess, even though as a believer, you immediately increase in your difficulty levels. Immediately. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. It's a bad sales pitch, you know, when you're trying to lead someone to the gospel. It's just like, by the way, if you come to Christ right now, your difficulty levels immediately increase. You still interested? And yet, that is, in a sense, how it works. You see, I've often said this everyone on earth has challenge, everyone because we live in a sin-riddled world. And so, for instance, it doesn't matter whose garden it is, it still has weeds, right? And you still have to tend to those weeds. Ah, weeds. Everyone has challenges, but a Christian gets bonus. And then when I'm speaking to leaders, I say, and a leader of Christians gets bonus bonus. And that doesn't sound very inviting, does it? Unless you recognize that the grace of God increases in your life with every difficulty. Then you can start to look at a difficulty in a different way. So, you know, one of my illustrations is getting a free uh, pass to a gym, you know, where you can work out. You know, when you see a weight, you could look at that weight and go, oh, no, it's a weight. Or you could come to that weight, snarl at it, give a little smirk, pick it up, and do some curls and get stronger from that weight. You have a life full of weight. However, many of you have been indoctrinated in the notion that that weight is an evil. And as a result, you don't engage that weight in such a way that actually strengthens you. And as a result, a weight in your life that isn't being engaged to strengthen you actually ends up like falling on your toe and bruising it. It's like, oh, oh, the weight... And many of us are hobbling around our living rooms complaining about the weight in our life instead of exercising that weight and getting stronger through it. Oh, Lord, thank you for these dumbbells that I have. This is amazing. I'm going to get strong through this. Laura's story. Now, I was driving down the road with uh, the kids yesterday, and we were listening to some music, and it had this one feature said, "Play next, so I clicked on it. And it had this uh, this song from Laura's story. I don't listen to much music. I know it sounds terrible, uh, but I don't. And so obviously whatever I listened to, whatever it was, it was Apple iTunes, is it like, you would like this song. And it looked like a sweet song. She looked like a nice lady, and the song sounded really nice too. Blessings. And so I clicked on it, and I tell you what, it was a, a rather profound song. And probably all of you are experts in it, and you could repeat the lyrics. I don't know how common it is. But I'm just going to read it to you because it fits. Because what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if, tr- the, what if trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? It's a wonderful statement the life we all desire. So as humans, we're wired, and it's predictably so. In other words, we could go out and you could could make a statement like, you don't know me, and I could say, well, I sort of do. I sort of do know you. We're all different, but I know certain things about you. There are certain ways that we are built because it's part of the construct of the kingdom. We were made in the image of the living God, so therefore we all bear certain similarities. The life we all desire. Isaiah 58, 8 through 12, and then verse 14. Okay, now I'm going to do something in Isaiah 58 that is a little odd. For those of you that are familiar with Isaiah 58, uh, it's typically known as the chosen fast or the true fast, right? But I'm going to take portions out of it. I'm going to fill in the other portions. Don't don't get me wrong here. But I'm going to take portions out first to show you the life that we all crave. Then, now it's strange to start with a then because it indicates that there was something before that, right? However, I'm going to start with the then because I'm trying to make a point here. Then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. Then your light shall dawn in the darkness and your darkness shall be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought, and strengthen your bones, and you shall be a watered garden like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Those from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations, and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Then you shall delight yourself in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. Then the mouth of the Lord has spoken." Now, if you could pick a little segment of scripture and circle it and say, Lord Jesus, I want that. That's a pretty good one to pick. It speaks the language of what we desire. We desire our life to matter. We desire our life to work. We desire our life to triumph. We desire our life to shine. We desire our life to impact the world in which we live, that when we're gone, something better is left. Whoa. that's what the promise is, and the Lord, the mouth of the Lord, has spoken. Now, wouldn't you want to know what the previous statement was that led to that? Because that's the key here. This is what we crave, but what leads to this? So, I'm going to say context, context, context is very, very important in this because God is going to be speaking to his people and he's going to lay out a pattern. A pattern for how we live that leads to this triumph. And here it is. Isaiah 58, 6-14. Is not this the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring to your house the poor that are cast out? When thou see the naked, thou cover him, and not hide yourself from your own flesh. Then... If you take away from the midst of thee the yoke, the putting forth the finger, and the speaking of vanity, and if thou draw out thy soul to the hunger and satisfy the afflicted soul, then... You'll notice I have these chunks with dot, dot, dots, ellipses after them. You see, that's where it goes into the promises, the, the life that we all desire. It says, then this will happen. Then this will happen. But there's a if first If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord, honorable, and shall honor him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words, then... So, and by the way, sorry that you see capital letters in the midst of it. That's a copy and paste thing from the New King James. I don't know why they choose to do that, but it really bothers me. And if I, I always try and catch them, but you, sometimes I catch them when I'm reading them and it bothers me, maybe then it bothers more than it bothers you. <clears throat> so, the if prior to the then, we have this in every aspect of our life. We desire the then that is satisfying, that is triumphant, that is strong. But we need to not ignore the if. That there is that conditional relationship in the kingdom of heaven where God is saying, this needs to be established. And if it is, it leads to this. Let's not miss that. So if, and I'm just going to pick, because there's actually 19 things that are in the if list. But I'm obviously cutting to the chase. If, number 16, you will honor him. 17 by not doing your own ways, 18, by not finding your own pleasure, 19, nor by speaking your own words, then. Now, I just want you to know up front that that is the opposite of how humans work. And so, isn't it tough that when the if just happens to be impossible, it sort of makes the uh, then uh, a little hard to reach? And yet, I would say it's important for you to look at what's on the screen and recognize that there is someone who has gone before you that has prepared a way for you. You see, this is what Jesus did. Jesus fulfilled Isaiah 58, he fulfilled the chosen fast. And what he has done has created an avenue for you to actually follow, even though, humanly speaking, you would find it impossible to do so. But because he has gone before you and then now has supplied you his Holy Spirit, you are actually able to come into agreement and live a life that triumphs. The seeming contradiction. Are we saved by works or by grace? I'm just gonna get it out of the table because there has to be someone in here that's wondering about this. Wait a minute. So I'm supposed to do all these good things and then I get these these results. and I, I don't blame you. I don't blame you for at least having the question, because it's it's an important one to, to answer. And this is what I'll say. The work we do for Jesus is not what saves us. The work of Jesus saves us. And I capitalized work there. The work of Jesus is what saves us. It is his rescue work, capital W, that delivers our soul. Now, because we have been transformed by Jesus Christ and we have set ourselves in his hands. His Holy Spirit now makes this his body. So these hands are no longer my hands. They're the body of Christ. They're Christ's hands. These feet, Christ's hands and feet, his mouth, his mind. It's called the mind of Christ. We are meant to now be a house of the life of Christ. So that what this body does, known as an individual body, but also us, all of us together, the body of Christ, is meant to reveal the unseen. It's meant to reveal the Christ. It's an incredible thought, right? And so we still have work that we do. However, it's a work that is enabled first by his capital W work 2,000 years ago and his capital W work of the Holy Spirit in us. It's not me doing some amazing feats of accomplishments. It's like, oh, look at the righteousness that Eric Ludi is dishing out today. But look at what God has done in and through this weak, decaying vessel known as Eric Ludi. And he has chosen that vessel and moved in. And now there's a real work that comes out of the life of Eric and it's supposed to have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is the work, capital W, of the Holy Spirit within me. And then I, you see on this side of the ledger, you see lowercase w work that Eric Ludy is doing. I'm going to do things. I'm going to embrace an inconvenience. And that is a work that I am doing. It's not a work that saves me. It's a work that reveals that I am saved. And that is an important distinguishing mark to put on this. We still do work but it is a result of the capital W work of Jesus Christ and then the Holy Spirit. So it's a matter of orientation. If you think about Isaiah 58, it's saying if you turn outward, if you look at the needs around you, then. However, what do most of us do? We think, if I could just get my life in order, if I could just figure out how to fix this, if I could just spend more time on me, then I could have time to focus on others. I've been around plenty of people that have this mindset. If I could just make a few million, then I'll start really supporting missions. Because then I won't have to worry about my own pocketbooks, and now I can start giving outward. It's a very interesting uh, trap that we can fall into. That once I fully satisfy me, I will now have an overflow to deal with other things, okay? It's just a trap. It's just a bait because that's not how it works. God's saying right now, pick up your cross, deny yourself, let go of you as the priority. Well, God, if I let go of me, who's going to take care of me? Because uh, right now I feel like I need to protect me. If you've ever been hurt in your life, you understand what it's like to protect you. Because you're thinking, boy, I got hurt big time. God obviously didn't step up and protect me. So now you are taking a role of protection. And it becomes extra difficult to let go and to say, God, I'm going to turn outward. I'm going to focus on you and what you're focused on. Just follow his gaze. Where is he looking? And when you make that your focus, you know what he promises to do? To focus on you. God, you're not going to drop this, are you? I still remember when I was trying to negotiate with God in regards to my future uh, wife. I was single, and it was rather scary because I had this sense that God was saying, "Could you entrust that to me?" And if I could describe it, it's like this big diamond that I had, and and God's like, hey, "Eric, what's that in your hand?" So, uh, it's just it's like my my designs, my my future, my hope, uh, my longings. I mean, you could have it call it all sorts of things, right? But it's like. A dream that I have. He's like, Eric, would you mind entrusting that to me? Because I'd like to do something with that that you could never do, but I need it. Because if I give it to God, what if he doesn't take it as seriously as I would? What if he's like brushing his teeth one morning and he has it in his hand, right? And he doesn't realize that and it slips out the side and goes down the drain. And I'm like, God, so how's that going with you know, that diamond I gave you? And he's like, Eesh, so sorry. But it just happens every now and then. Not often, but with your diamond, it went down the drain. Okay, now, I caught some of you red-handed with that one because for whatever reason, we do have this concern. We do know he's great, okay? And he's really good at what he does. But what if there's a certain statistical possibility that he could overlook one human and fail one human, and I could just feel like I'm going to be that statistic. Isn't that a pretty arrogant place to put yourself? To think that you're so important that you would be the one person that he forgets out of all the universe? That's a pretty uh, arrogant position. You will not be forgotten. Whatever you entrust to your God, He takes great care of it. He is faithful and true. So it's a matter of orientation. If I'm focused on me, it's up to me, and I will fail. If I'm focused on him, he will do it, and he will succeed. Now, what I just gave you is the elementary school lesson of the kingdom of heaven, and yet it's like, master's level, doctorate level as well, because this is what you're constantly working out in your life. Every single one of you knows what I just said, and yet, wow, it's a daily thing to agree with it and to recognize that when you take, for instance, let's just use your finances as an illustration. When you take your finances and you are in paralysis mode Of concern and anxious over every expenditure, and I'm not saying you shouldn't be wise with your spending. But when it's up to you, it really is up to you, and you have to do it perfectly. In a sense, you're bringing yourself under the law, and it's based on human excellence. And you will be held accountable to all of the financial laws that exist, and they're they're really there. However, if you hand over your resource to God. You say, God, I trust you with this. You move under a different realm. You're under his supernatural control. And he's very good at handling his resource. So the question is, even though we are stewards in this, is this yours or is it his? And when you make it yours, you have to do it perfectly. It's the law. It's the way the law functions. No one wants to live that way. But when you entrust it to him, he will take care of it. It's a very, very challenging tension in our soul. But if I'm focused on him, if I give it to him, if I give that diamond to him, he will take care of it. He will do it, and he will succeed every single time. Matthew 6.33, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. So this is how Jesus basically is going to explain Isaiah 58 in the New Testament. He is going to basically be saying, look, if you focus on the kingdom of heaven, all these details in your life will be addressed. You will be cared for if you focus on him first. So here's a fun word for you guys from the Hebrew. Sum. It's, a, it's a fun word to say, too. I know some of you are, are going to want to say it after I say it a few times. Sum. Sum. Isn't that fun? It doesn't really have a lot of oomph to it, a lot of you know, consonant sound to it. It's just zoom. And uh, it, what it means, it's an action, and it means to shut the mouth, to choose to not open and partake, to fast. So when we talk about Isaiah 58 and we talk about the chosen fast, This is what we're referring to. It is a closing of the mouth. Isn't that an interesting statement? It's a closing of the mouth. It is a choice to not open or partake of something. So something could be in in front of you, but you're going to choose not to partake of it. And that's why it's called a fast. Now, most of us, when we think of a fast, are going to think of food. And that's a tough one for many of us, too. And it, it, it definitely can be that. Just like you could say worship. When you think of worship, you think of singing. And it definitely can be singing. However, worship is a lifestyle. It's not just a song sung. It is an attitude of the soul, and so is sum. In other words, sum is a deliberate choice to close your mouth instead of open and partake of something. So, for instance, I was using the illustration of my singleness in that diamond. Sum would, in a sense, be, Lord, I, have, I want to have voice in this. I want to do something my way, but I am going to hand it to you. And I am going to close my mouth and say, I trust you. I'm not going to give my opinion of what should happen with that. I am going to trust you with yours. That is a really challenging thing, but that is the action of sum. So Psalm 118, 22 through 24, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Well, that sounds like uh, the story of uh, the gospel, the, the day of, uh, of the crucifixion and the resurrection. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. So if you think about that, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The builders rejected something. It doesn't sound like a very positive thing. And yet you actually realize that this is the day the Lord has made. God made a day that involved suffering. He made a day that involved a great challenge. He he made a day that involved a great shame, and he took it upon himself. And yet, we will rejoice and be glad in it. When we stare at God's ways and God's working in our life, will we rejoice and be glad in it? He knows how to build us into saints. He knows how to grow us up unto a full maturity. Will we accept his way or will we start gabbing? Will our mouth be open talking about how much we don't like his way or will we shut our mouth and say, Lord, I trust you? Rejoicing and being glad in the Lord's day. Which Here's my way of describing it. Purposely choosing to be glad in God's way of doing things. Embracing inconvenience. Electing a more difficult pattern. Selecting a more challenging way by fasting Isaiah 58 style. So here's the list that's uh, from our, our list of ifs, thens. 17, 18, and 19 in the list. Remember there was 19 total. By not doing your own ways... By not finding your own pleasure, nor by speaking your own words. Have you ever seen this done on, on earth? I mean, this is, this is not normal here. Not doing your own ways. Well, if you're not doing your own ways, whose ways are you doing? By not finding your own pleasure. If you're not going after your own pleasure, whose pleasure are you going after? By not speaking your own words. If you're not speaking your own words, whose words are you speaking? Jesus modeled this fast. Let's go through a few scriptures that show that. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Boom. Zoom. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silence. So he opened not his mouth. John 6, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. John 7, 16, Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Jesus is God Almighty, and yet he doesn't claim to have his own teaching. Everything his mouth is going to speak is going to be something that he's getting from the Father. That is an extraordinary model. And yet this is the model. This is the Christ model. Whose body do you think you represent? Whose mouth do you think you represent? John 8:28 So Jesus said when you have lifted up the son of man then you will know that I am and that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the father has taught me. John 12:49 For I did not speak on my own but the father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. So let's look at. I'm calling this the sliding scale of readiness. And so, for those that are just getting this via podcast, they can't see my cool slide. I don't even know. Yeah, you guys can see the bottom of it. Good. Uh, but what we have is on the on the far left side, you have a readiness to do God's work, which sounds very Jesus esque, right? And then if you slide all the way to the other side, you have sort of where we struggle. <laughs> And this is where we pop out of the, our mother's womb, and this is where we start. So let's, let's sort of go in that descending scale. And we could go opposite direction, but let's start with something that is truly Christ. Salivating to spend oneself. I know it might be a pretty extreme word, but in delight, knowing God's ways, appreciating God's ways, and saying, Lord, I desire to be spent for you. And the second one down is desirous to spend oneself. The next one is interested in spending oneself. The next one is willing to consider spending oneself. The next one is desirous not to spend oneself. The next one is concerned about spending oneself. And then we have opposed to spending oneself. I just want you to just allow the Spirit of God to show you where you're at right now. Because it doesn't help to try and act like you're super spiritual in your mind. It's like, no, I, I really am salivating to spend myself. You see, when you're Desirous to spend yourself, I don't know if, you know, there's different seasons of life, like especially when you start to get burdens and responsibilities in your life. Like I've had seasons in my life where I am eager to have a ministry opportunity because I didn't have any. And I'm like, Lord, Jesus, here I am. I'm ready to be used. And there's other seasons where I'm like, dear Lord, begin to shut down ministry opportunities. I can't handle it, right? Right. And so it's interesting in that, that you can find yourself not opposed, like I'm not opposed to spending myself, but where I might have a day where I'm desirous not to spend myself. And that's actually something that I want us to be aware of in this, that our our function as humans is naturally aimed towards our own satisfaction, towards our own care, and we always want to be in a ready state. And this is what leads to the abundant life. Ironically, the way the enemy says it is like, yeah, you better take care of yourself for a while so that you can be effective. There's part truths in these things. In other words, if you are not governed in saying yes to the priority points in your life, like uh, you know, my relationship with God. If I'm not saying yes to my relationship with God because I'm saying yes to all sorts of ministry opportunities, my relationship with God begins to go south and so does my witness of him. My life is no longer congruent with the kingdom pattern. If my relationship with my wife is not being tended to as a priority point in my life, then there's breakdown in other areas. If my relationship with my kids is not in a priority point, and instead I'm spending myself on all these lost souls out there, I actually am in danger of harming the gospel and harming the representation of heaven in what I'm doing. So there's a part truth in all of these things. However, you know that when you are in a burdened state and an overwhelmed state, even spending time in the scriptures with God, which I know sounds very spiritual, right, is, is weighty, And you just want to spend on yourself. So when we think of preserving ourselves, oftentimes when we're in a burned out state, we're not going to God. We're not spending time in our marriage. We're not spending time with our kids. We're trying to get away and go brain dead. That is an unhealthy model. So there is a reality that God wants us always to be ready to give and not to start gripping our life afresh and say, this is mine, but God, I need to take care of myself for a season because I feel really thin right now. And God wants us to always be in the state. It's like, God, I belong to you. You know where I'm at. You know what I need right now. And I pray that you would lead me beside the still waters and you would restore my soul, that I wouldn't try and restore my own soul, but that I would give myself afresh to you. Let's look at another sliding scale. This is a sliding scale of being available to inconvenience. So I have different things that trigger this in my life. And that is, it's, it can be scary to sometimes win someone to Christ. I don't know if that makes any sense to you, but because it's not just winning someone to Christ, it's also now adopting them as a student, as a disciple, to now lead them into the fullness of the kingdom. Oh, wow. Oh, that's, a, that's a big deal. How about, Lord, we spread this out? Like maybe once a quarter, I lead someone to Christ? As opposed to being ready and available and knowing that God knows my capacity. Instead of me trying to measure my gauge, you know, and looking, you know, tapping the, the fuel gauge, going, oh, it's really low. I should tap heaven's fuel gauge. Oh, wow, there's a lot there. Everything that is needed is supplied. And that's how we need to reason. I have certain trigger points, you know. Leslie and I have four adopted kids, but when Leslie comes up to me and mentions adopting another child, it is very weird. But I find myself, and I have all sorts of justifications, like well, financially, well, time-wise, oh, our vehicle doesn't have an extra seat. <laughs> and this is how many of us reason in our life: is we're looking for the quick out, as opposed to whatever it takes. If that means getting a new vehicle, which, by the way, the Ludies have gone through that already. That's why I'm extra sensitive to it. We, got, we, we went and got a new vehicle because we were bringing two home instead of one home. It's like, oh, no, we have a seven-seater. Now we need an eight-seater. And they did not have any modification for the Toyota Sienna seven-seater to make it an eight-seater. Can you believe that? And so there goes our to- Toyota Sienna. I think we lost $8,000 on that one. And we get an eight-seater, and then it took two years to get Reese and Lily home from that point. Oh, pain! So I've gone through this, right? So now when you already have the cars maxed out and then you think of adopting one more, it's like, boy, this sounds like stress. As opposed to, Lord, what do you want? Not Eric, what do you think is reasonable? Lord, what do you want? Salivating to be inconvenienced. I'm not sure how many of you in here are at that point desirous to be inconvenienced, interested in being inconvenienced, willing to consider being inconvenienced. That's probably a good description of many of us. Okay, I'm hearing what Eric's saying, and I'm willing to consider what this could look like. Desirous not to be inconvenienced, concerned about being inconvenienced, opposed to being inconvenienced. The healthy Christian life embraces inconvenience. If you think about it, guys, everything about what we are called to is to literally head into the territory of inconvenience and embrace it. I still, there's a story from World War II that always stirs me, and that is uh, when Cory Tenboom's nephew, Peter, they hear about a uh, hundred Jewish babies that are about to be killed the next day. So they they have these Nazi uniforms, uh, whether they stole them or whether they got them off of Nazi guards that came to Christ. I'm not exactly sure which way that went, but they had them. And so he and this whole band of young guys go and rescue hundred babies. Now here's where the stress comes in. Now you have hundred Jewish babies and you have to acknowledge, guys, that's a, that's a noble act to literally rescue hundred babies. But where are these hundred babies going to go and who's going to take care of them? You know that the church at that time in Holland took in those babies. And I've always thought, if we had a 100 babies just suddenly show up because we rescued them from being killed by the Nazis, would we, as the church today, be ready to receive them into our homes? You know, And I could say, well, I already adopted four, I think. We're going to look around and see, who hasn't adopted? You see, this is how we could easily work too. It doesn't matter what we've done before. What are we doing now? What is our attitude now? What is our disposition now? As Americans, we have a tendency to go the opposite direction of what I'm describing. And yet, what I would say is if we're going to return to the full strength of Christianity, which I'm going to read at the very end, Isaiah 58, this is what we want to see. This is the life of Christ. This is what he wants to manifest in us and through us. We need to embrace inconvenience. So Corey Tenboom, Boom, who I've mentioned twice now, Ravensbrook, and then I just mentioned the rescue of the hundred babies, In her book, Tramp for the Lord, she has chapter 15, is sort of on inconvenience, if I could say it that way, and I'm just going to read it because it ranks up there as one of Leslie's and my favorite chapters in any Corey Ten Boom book. It is laugh-out-loud hilarious when someone actually is honest about what they're thinking inside when it comes to some of these things, which is very therapeutic for all of us to realize we're not alone in this. And yet her response to it and to what she sees in herself is beautiful. So uh, <clears throat> I'll just read it. And I think, you, well, you'll, you'll miss some of the bottom lines because of how the, the screen is set up there. But at least I can see them. That, that you, and so we'll work together on this. Well, in Havana, Cuba, I was asked to speak at a youth rally in the Salvation Army Hall. Of course, this was before the communist takeover, so there was still freedom to talk openly about the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a hot June night, and the hall was small and stifling. The meeting was scheduled to begin at 7 o'clock, but more and more groups continued to arrive from other parts of the city, so no one seemed to be in a hurry to start. As in most Latin American countries, everything was, manana, manana, even the church services. Finally, I was seated on the platform between two men with huge drums. One of them, an old Cuban with white hair, tried to show his love for the Lord by vigorously beating one of the drums. The sound was almost unbearable. The captain had a very sharp voice and led the singing by shouting, waving his hands and pounding on the top of the pulpit. The young Cubans sang loudly with much clapping of hands and stomping of feet. By nine o'clock, I was already worn out, and all I had done was sit and listen. There was a terrific ringing in my ears, and my head was splitting with a headache from the crashing sounds of the drums. Finally, though I was called on to speak and the hall grew silent, I was grateful for the few moments of peace After I spoke, the captain introduced a missionary who had brought his slides. The lights were turned out, and we all sat in the miserable heat while the missionary began his long slide presentation. Like many missionaries, he had been called upon to do some medical work in the field, so many of his slides dealt with that. He had photograph after photograph of drugs and medicines, which had been given by various doctors. This particular bottle of pills was given me by Dr. Smith, he droned on, Then flipping to his next slide, he said, And this box of medicines was sent me by Dr. Jones. The young people in the hall were not the least bit interested in seeing these boxes, bottles, and jars. Oops. Sorry, guys. The noise grew louder and louder and finally reached such volume that the missionary had to shout to make himself heard. It was 10.30 when he finally finished his presentation and the lights came back on. Now the room was filled with flying bugs, moths, insects, and some kind of huge flying beetle, which buzzed around the exposed light bulbs and then dropped to the floor or in people's laps. The young people were climbing over the backs of the benches. Babies were asleep on the floor, and everybody was sweating profusely. I did not think I could stand much more. Then the captain came to the front again and began to preach. A flying insect went in my ear, and another was caught in my hair. I looked for some way to escape, but I was boxed in by the huge drums on either side. Finally, the captain gave an invitation for people to come forward and be saved. Surely, no one is in a mood to do anything but go home, I said to myself. Then I thought, I hope nobody comes to the front. I long to get out of here and go to bed. Yet, to my great surprise, people began getting up from their seats and coming to the front. They were kneeling all around the altar. 20 of them I saw tears in the eyes of some of the young Cubans and listened as the captain spoke with great persuasion, his voice full of love. A startling realization swept over me. I was selfish. I had hoped nobody would be saved because of my own weariness. My sleep was more important than the salvation of sinners. Oh, what a terrible egotist I was. Suddenly my bed was no longer important. I was willing to stay up all night if God was working. But what could I do with my guilty feeling for having been so selfish? I began to praise God, for I had learned what to do with my sin. I confessed it to the Heavenly Father in Jesus' name, and I claimed his forgiveness. With joy I was able to get up and pray with the twenty young people who had made the important decision to commit their lives to Jesus Christ. It was eleven thirty when the meeting finally came to a close. The next morning, Sunday, I spoke in a beautiful church which was filled with the most prominent people in Havana. As I entered the imposing buildings, I was given, uh, building, I was given a copy of the parish magazine which had been handed to all the other people. In it, I read an introductory article about my ministry. It said, Cory Tenboom is the most popular world evangelist. She is tireless and completely selfless in her absolute dedication to the cause of the gospel. Oh Lord, I thought, if only these people knew who the real Cory Tenboom is. They would not have come out this morning to hear me. Tell them, the Lord answered immediately. So then she goes on to tell them the story of the night before. And actually a great work of grace transcends that entire congregation. She is willing to acknowledge she has a problem with the same thing we all do. She's selfish. She's thinking about herself instead of the souls around her. You see, we all have this propensity, and so we might as well just get it out on the table. Those times when you're actually afraid to share the gospel, lest someone hear it and heed it and come to know him and then needs to be discipled. Do I have time for that? I And so the self-protective instinct is a very real thing in all of us. The first sermon on the Ellerslie stage, you know that it wasn't me that gave it, it was Hudson. Uh, and he got up here, and it's one of those classic moments in Ellerslie history where I wasn't even here. Uh, and I don't even know that Leslie was here for that, but Miss Annie, and I don't know who else was with her uh, and they were sitting out there, and Hudson was pacing back and forth like Daddy does, and then he came and landed on his message, and it was, uh, "Did you know that God wants us to rescue the orphan?" And so that's how Ellerslie started. Ellersley started with that sermon. That, did we know that God has a job for us, and it's not to just care for ourselves, but it's to consider his desires. It's to consider what he wants to do in this earth. And we could immediately respond back and say, but God, that would inconvenience my schedule. I have a really good schedule. You're talking about Eric ludi I have a really good schedule. And my schedule, if it's just kept, everything goes smoothly. And yet God doesn't seem as interested in keeping my schedule as I seem to be in desiring him to keep it. He always seems to like to bring things in to sort of test my schedule to see what my priority is. Is my my priority on my schedule or on his agenda? Lord, couldn't your agenda be my schedule? And yet God knows that Eric needs to be broken to be more flexible. Some of you in here that don't have a schedule, maybe God wants to elevate your schedule, and put priority on that. We're all in a different place, but God wants to bring us all to the place of readiness to serve and to give. So this is something I wrote October 9th, 2008. Hudson was walking through the grocery store and he would have been, uh, what, four uh, at the time. Uh, And he said uh, to daddy, you know what kind of person I am? I'm the kind of person who sees owies and fixes them. And so then he came home and took Harper, who was one and a half, and laid her down, and he he was convinced that she had a head injury, and he was that she had an owie and he needed to fix it. She wasn't as convinced about that. So this is what I said because it really stirred me. My little boy has begun to discern between three very distinct sorts of people. The third one's on the next slide, by the way, if you're wondering what happened to it. There are people that see owies and fix them. There are people that see owies and don't fix them. And there are people that for some reason just can't see other people's owies and as a result don't fix them. The question that keeps dancing through my head is, Dear Lord, of which sort am I? I can preach all day long about the fact that we should see owies and fix them. But that talking about things doesn't equate to the action of the thing. And I learned this very early in our marriage Leslie and I, you know, write a book when we're first married. We're traveling all over the globe speaking about our love story. And so we were on stage talking about our love for one another, and I had to realize that us talking on stage before a large crowd about our love wasn't the same as speaking to her privately about my love for her. It was such a strange thing. It's like, I just announced to a whole group how much I love you and that I think you're the most beautiful woman on earth. She's like, "Uh uh-huh. Well, that didn't count. And it was a weird thing to realize that you can talk about something, but there's an action that actually cultivates the real thing in your life. And what I want us to remember this morning is that God wants to move us to action, not to just contemplation, but to actually live this and make our life available to him. Even today, that there may be a soul that needs to be attended to, but to attend to that soul may mean inconvenience on our part. The three stations of transformation, the prison camp, the boot camp, and the prison camp again. So this is how I oftentimes say it. We're stuck in the prison camp. We're a slave to sin, and then Jesus sets us free. And what does he bring us into? Boot camp. To train us, to build us, to empower us, to equip us. Why? What, what do we have all this equipment for? So that we can be sent back into the prison camp and set prisoners free. You didn't think he was just building you strong so that he could waste all that strength, to just stick it all in you. He wants you to utilize that. And so it's very, very important to recognize God doesn't want to keep us in a prison camp. But he also doesn't want to just keep us in the boot camp being built to be a great soldier. He wants us to spend that great soldierness so that we can build others up. The sliding scale of the yes, Lord. Saying yes, Lord, is a tough thing, isn't it? So Jesus in the garden, of course, has the predecided yes, Lord. Not my will, but thine. And I want you to ponder the phrase, the pre decided yes, Lord. That means before he asks you, you've already said yes. It's not that you're going to contemplate it, you're already in a position of yes. Doesn't matter what inconvenience it is, doesn't matter what trial it is, doesn't matter if it's life or death. My answer is yes. I'm not saying that that's easy, that's a work of the Spirit of grace. But the pre decided yes, Lord, then the next one, the I really want to say yes, Lord. The, I intend to say, yes, Lord, but let me evaluate the situation before I do. The, if God sends an angel to tell me and yells in my face, then I will, yes, Lord, say, yes, Lord. The, I never plan to ever say the words, yes, Lord. So I don't know where you are in that sliding scale, but I want for each of us to move to the left in each of these sliding scales this morning. I want us to just be readied, because some of us are hanging out in that middle territory which is a little goopy for our soul. In other words, it's better, of course, than being against what God wants to do. Yeah, you're willing to consider a little inconvenience. You're open to the prayer. You know, It might take an angel to speak to you on those points. It shouldn't take an angelic visit for you to be available to the Spirit of God today. God has rescued you, and he desires to use you. The same way you have been blessed by the living God, he wants to bless through you. The then of embracing inconvenience. So, if you embrace inconvenience, there's a then that goes with it. And this is how we're going to finish. We're going to go through, I think it's like 17 different things that come forth when you embrace your inconvenience, when you close your mouth and you allow God to speak instead, when you close your agenda when you give up your way, when you hand him your diamond, then your light shall break forth like the morning. Then your healing shall spring forth speedily. Then your righteousness shall go before you. Then the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. Then you shall cry and he shall say, here I am. Then your light will dawn in the darkness. Then your darkness will be as the noonday. Then the Lord will guide you continually. Then the Lord will satisfy your soul in drought. Then the Lord will strengthen your bones. Then you will be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Then your children will build the old waste places. Then you will raise up the foundations of many generations. Then you will be called the repairer of the breach. Then you will be called the restorer of streets to dwell in. Then you will delight yourself in the Lord. So what's needed, guys? It isn't a great work on your part. It's letting go. It's saying, God, I trust you. I trust you to be exactly who you say you are. He knows where you're at this morning. He knows your reservation. He knows that many of you have that North American mindset, which is me, 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 me. Instead of my king, my king, my king. You have given everything for me. The least I can do in response is give everything to you. Here's my time. Here's my resource. Here's my energies. Here's my future. Here's my diamond. You care for it. Father, this is a work of grace. Every one of us would be hardened in our selfishness if it was not for you. But you have been working on us and drawing us unto yourself. And I pray that this morning you would do that in a beautiful and profound way. And you would not let us even allow a bit of this in. Lord, just as Corey Tenboom, as she sat on that stage between the big drums, Lord, I pray that you would soften our hearts to recognize that there is no greater pleasure, no greater desire that we could ever have, no greater fulfillment than to just be yours, to belong to you, to be available to you, and to allow the Holy Spirit to rule in our lives. So, Lord, here we are. As we worship today, I pray, Lord Jesus, that it would be a very genuine version of it. It's in the precious name of Jesus Christ that we pray these things. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellersley campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.